That clock made the end of the prayer and the beginning of the sermon feel very official. <laughs> I love it. Hey, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis 13. You're welcome to use the worship guide or passage there. Today, we're, we have the third message in our series on Abraham. Uh, we're settling into a, a long series. Uh, going through the life of Abraham, the patriarch. Uh, Abraham's life is like God's relationship with Abraham is God's intro dance, if you will, uh, with his people. Because of his unique relationship with Abraham, that's when he teaches us uh, how to dance with him, to speak metaphorically. We look at Abraham's life and we see what it means to be in relationship with God. And as we study Abraham's life, there's so many things we can learn from Abraham. And we're, we're picking up some of that stuff along the way. But he's really not the focus of our series. In his um, epic, very famous systematic theology, uh, theologian John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he starts out uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of deep theological thinking, he starts out uh, expressing the idea that we can't really know who we are ourselves unless we know God. The key to knowledge of self is knowledge of God. In fact, the way John Calvin wrote it, he said, without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. And that comes to my mind as we study Abraham's life. Uh, because we're not just trying to learn about Abraham. We can learn to be just like him and still be a complete mess. We're not trying to learn primarily about ourselves. Uh, we're trying to learn about God, Abraham's God, and our God. So as we go through these stories, we're asking two big questions every single week. The first is, who is Abraham's God in this passage? And the second is, is this the God that we know? So... Today, we start out episode three in, Ab in Abram's life, and uh, that's what we're looking for. Who is Abraham's God, uh, and who uh, is, this the, and is this the God that we know? So if you would, let's look at the text, and let's read it together. Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made the altar at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's, of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. 
And if you take the left hand, I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are, northwards and southwards and eastwards and westwards, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that no one can count the dust of the earth. Your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and he came and he settled on the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us in this way in a book, a book that you call us to read and reread and turn over in our minds and use common grace reading tools like uh, taking in the flow of the story and the structure of the story and the grammar and all of these things were wrestling with something holy. And we praise you for that. Thank you for meeting us with your holiness in what's common, words on a page. God, thank you for speaking to us through these stories. And open our imaginations. I pray that you would do that now. Open our imaginations to who you are. Open our hearts to who you are. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is kind of a famous story, famous story in the life of Abraham, or at this time, his name is still Abram. I remember hearing this story for the first time when I was a little kid in Sunday school. And when I heard it for the first time, the lesson that the teacher drew out was a lesson about conflict resolution. Here we have Abram and Lot unable to live together in the land. Their herdsmen, their families were fighting. And they were, Abram leading the way was able to resolve this conflict with his nephew Lot. And there's so much that we can learn here about conflict resolution. In fact, when I first started studying this passage, I, 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 uh, I studied this passage pretty in depth this summer. And when I first started, you know, taking notes on the passage, I, I wrote down, you know, three principles about conflict resolution from this passage. But getting ready to preach this, uh, I was reminded that the goal here of a sermon is not just teaching principles, even if we find those principles in the Bible. That's important, but that's not the goal. The goal is what we talked about before, looking to God in worship 
and hearing from him as he speaks in his word. So here in this passage, there's a lot for us to pick up about conflict resolution, and that's important, and I want to hit some of that. But as we work through this story, let's remember that the goal is not to try to learn how we could pick up some tips to live better, but the goal is that we would see God as he reveals who he is in this passage to us. Toward that end, I see in this passage two things that God shows us about himself that are important for us. So two things we can learn about God from this story. And big surprise, uh, maybe not such a big surprise, uh, the Holy Spirit working through this shows us things that matter in our time and place. And the things I believe that God shows us in this passage about himself are things that we could really use in our time, that we need uh, looking to him as the Savior. So here's the first thing. First thing that God shows us in this passage about himself. Number one, God shows us that he doesn't think about prosperity like we often do. What can we learn about God in this passage? Well, we learn that God doesn't think about prosperity like we often do. I look at this story and it starts out, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Remember, Abram had been in Egypt uh, with Sarai, his wife, because there was a famine in Canaan. He shouldn't have gone there. It was a bad trip. He took money from Pharaoh, basically selling out his wife and putting her in great danger. Uh, but God delivered them from that. And now they're coming up from Egypt with all that they have, Abram and Sarai and Lot, Abram's nephew, uh, going with them. And then the next verse, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And we read on uh, that verse five, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And both Abram and Lot were so uh, prosperous with their money and with their possessions that they couldn't live together in the land. Remember, the land had just been through a famine. Maybe it was still going on. We don't know. But we do know that Abram had not taken full possession of the land. Uh, it says that the Canaanites were still in the land. So here's Abram and Lot trying to live in between farms, uh, you know, moving in between cities and trying to stay off of, out of other people's front yards. And they both are just overflowing with wealth and possessions. And it causes tension. There's a lot about prosperity in this passage. And we see that God doesn't think about prosperity like we do. This is the first passage in the Bible that really focuses in on a theology of money and possessions. And again, Abram's life, it's the intro dance. So what God teaches us about money and possessions here matters th throughout the way we read the entire Bible. And we see that he doesn't think about it like we do. Well, Charlie, what do you mean by that? What do you mean God doesn't think about prosperity like we do? This summer, um, before I came on board here at Hope, I had the opportunity to go spend a week 
uh, at the Cannon Beach Conference Center playing guitar on a praise team for one of the Cannon Beach Family Bible Conferences. It was a wonderful week of hanging out and uh, playing guitar on a worship team and meeting new people. Well, one of the guys that I met on that trip, his name is Matt, and Matt was actually the speaker for the week. And one of the teaching times Matt told his story. Matt didn't grow up in church. In fact, he grew up skeptical and afraid of church. He told the story of how growing up his dad, every time they would drive by a church or hear preaching on the radio or anything like that, his dad would turn to him and say, now, son, remember, you can't trust the church because all the church cares about is money. And Matt grew up hearing all the church cares about is money. They want your money. That's all they care about. Maybe you guys have heard that criticism of the church. Uh, Matt went on to talk about when he first visited church as a young adult, he was nervous because he thought they would try to take his money. And when the time came in the service where they passed the plate, he thought, ah, there it is. All they care about is money. And the way Matt told the story of how that affected him, uh, it affected me because I, too, have heard the critique that all the church cares about is money. And I, too, at times in my life have thought that because there's some truth in that statement. Throughout church history, uh, huge sections of time that can be actually characterized by the church's almost obsession with money. And throughout history, the church has been all wrapped up with uh, trying to put money in its place in our walk with God. We as Christians often think about prosperity, money, and possessions, um, their, their place in our faith, money and possessions, they're our thing that we need to make work for God. One thing God requires of us is to take our money, take our possessions, take our, um, the things that we own and make them work for him. And we can look at church history and see all the ways the church has tried to do that. Primarily two ways. One is by giving money and possessions away, thinking that if we take this thing that's ours and we give it away, then God's going to see he's going to bless us and he's going to meet us in that. Renouncing money, giving money, giving possessions has been a way that we has, as a church have tried to make God work for us. I think about how uh, me, myself, growing up in church, many times when there was a sermon series on stewardship, it was actually just a sermon series on giving as if giving was the only kind of stewardship worth talking about. I think about church history, groups like the Franciscans in the Catholic world, taking vows of poverty and renouncing possessions. Think about the Waldensians in the Protestant world, renouncing money and renouncing possessions. I think about the early fathers in the early medieval period, late Catholic period, going out to the desert, renouncing possessions. And I think about even Luke 6, 20, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom. In Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But in Luke, he just says, blessed are the poor. And throughout church history, 
the church has interpreted blessed are the poor in a way that we feel like we need to renounce our money, renounce our possessions, go big on giving so that God will see us and that God will bless us because God doesn't want us to have money. And we've been obsessed with money. And you could see it in our track record. Or the church has taken the opposite approach. It says in Ecclesiastes 5 that wealth and possessions are a gift from God. And we know that God wants his children to have joy and good things in their life. And money can't buy happiness, but the things money can buy can bring happiness. And surely God wants us to have those things. I think about the church in the Middle Ages, or maybe even before that. I think about the church in the fourth century. I think about the stories about the Roman emperor, Constantine, and the emperors who came after them, showing up to church councils in shining golden robes to represent the wealth of God's kingdom. I think about the church in the Middle Ages where you would go into a town and have this beautiful extravagant cathedral and the clergy would have golden robes and they'd be well fed and they would be overflowing with riches while the people around were starving and were poor. And I think about the contemporary health and wealth gospel that we see on TV or maybe we have loved ones that might get caught up into it, where preachers preach that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, not really just to save you from your sins, but to give you the kingdom today, to fill your bank account and to rid sickness from your body so that you can be healthy and wealthy and full of life because that's God's plan for you. We look at church history. We look at our family story, it's the family of Abraham, and a dominant theme is money and possessions and the ways that we have chosen to try to make them work for God. And like Matt's story, I believe that the non-Christian world has looked on, has looked at us and said, all they care about is money. Well, look at this story, Genesis 13, this foundational Bible passage about prosperity about money and we see here that money and possessions prosperity is not our it's not our thing that we try to make work for god but it's actually god's thing that he makes work for our good and god doesn't rule prosperity money and possessions necessarily as good or bad on the front end but he works through them to get to our hearts it says right here in verse 2, Abram was very rich. And it doesn't affirm or condemn his riches. It doesn't say anything. But it does go on to show that God moves in such a way where Abram's riches and Lot's riches made it where they couldn't live together in the land and they had to separate. Now that's major. We see God doing something here in Abram's heart. If you remember, four weeks ago, when we started this series, when we started the story about Abram, do you remember the way it started? God called Abram out of Babylon to go to the land of Canaan, to, to believe God's promise that he would make Abram a blessing, that he would give him offspring that turned into a great nation, and that he would give him the land. 
And when God called Abram out of Babylon and to follow him into Canaan, into the promise, God had specific requests of Abram. Listen as I read it from verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Did you catch where Abram has been disobedient thus far in the story? God said to Abram, go from your country, leave Babylon, and go from your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then we continue reading on, and it says in verse 4, chapter 12, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And then we read again in chapter 12 that Abram goes and Lot goes with him. And then Abram goes down to Egypt and he comes back up. And we read in chapter 13, Abram comes up from Egypt, he and his wife and all he had, and Lot goes with him. God had told Abram, leave your family, leave your father's house. And Abram goes and takes his favorite nephew, Lot, along with him. Now, Abram thus far has only halfway obeyed God's command to leave Babylon, go to Canaan, and leave his family. He left Babylon, he went to Canaan, and we learned the lesson of him going down to Egypt. He shouldn't have done that. Leave Babylon, go to Canaan. He's learned that. Leave your family, leave your kindred, and here he is standing in the land with Lot. Now, kids, Sometimes as grown-ups, we get confused about this. So maybe you can help us here. Um, if your mom or your dad or your grown-up tells you to do something and you only do it halfway, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'll tell you what, I can barely see a couple of kids. Give me a thumbs up if it's good to only halfway obey your parents and a thumbs down if it's bad to halfway obey your parents. Oh, Oh, it's bad. Okay. Thank you, kids. Sometimes we as grown-ups get confused. Okay, what Abram does here, taking Lot along with him, it's halfway obedience. It's a bad thing. There's a problem in his heart. So look at what God does with money. God allows Abram to get rich. Remember where that money came from? It came, it's, it's a big part of that is the money he took from Pharaoh when he sold out his wife. That's blood money. But God allows him to accumulate it. And God allows Lot to accumulate wealth. And he lets them get so rich that they can't live together and they have to do something about it. Do you see what God is doing here? Throughout church history, as the people of God, and even before church history, when it was Jewish history, as the family of Abram, we look through history and we see that we have tried to use money to get God to pay attention to us, to try to get God to do something for us, to try to earn God's pleasure, and we become obsessed with it. But here in this passage, we see this foundational teaching that our prosperity doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And for, for God, money and possessions are a tool that he uses to get to our hearts. 
the big idea here, what God is showing us is as we walk with him in life, we need to take our eyes off of our money, whether we're wrapped up in giving it or in keeping it. Money is not our God. Possessions are not our savior. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, is our God. And Yahweh, the God of Abraham, is our savior. And thank him with all of our hearts that he takes something that we love to use as an idol and he uses it to uncover the idolatry in our heart and call us to focus on him. God, who is Abraham's God? Well, he's a God that has a bigger vision for prosperity than we often do. And what we find is that true prosperity, just like Abram found here, it ends with him settling into the land, looking north and south and east and west, and God says, all of this is yours. True prosperity is not found in managing our possessions well. True prosperity is found in worshipful obedience to God's commands. We consider Jesus. His life, he was perfectly obedient to God. Perfectly obedient to God as he lived in the land of Canaan as Abraham's son. And even as it says in Philippians 2 that we read earlier, even taking on the form of a lowly servant, he was perfectly prosperous. And that through his life of obedience, he was, as it says in Revelation 5, able to purchase a people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God doesn't think about prosperity like we do. For God, prosperity is not about money. It's about our hearts connected to Jesus, the son of Abraham, looking to God for salvation. Okay, so two things. God doesn't think about prosperity like we do. And here's the second thing. God doesn't think about power like we do. Money and power. Prosperity and power. You know, when it comes to the conflict in our lives and in our world, two of the major players that cause conflict in our families, our friendships, our city, and even in the world uh, boil down to money and power, don't they? Well, God's taught us a valuable lesson about money and possessions, and now he shows us something about power, about the way he thinks about power, about who he is as a powerful God that we need to know. Throughout history, uh, we as the church, and even just we as humanity, have thought about power in relation to conflict, like money, primarily one of two ways. We think that power is a resource that we need to yield or use in order to procure or achieve peace in the midst of conflict. We often think that power is something that we need to use to fix a conflict. And we do this. I think about how uh, on a global scale, when there's maybe a war breaks out somewhere, there's a civil war or unrest, the United States or the United Nations or NATO sends in armed peacekeeping troops 
sends in powerful soldiers in order to secure and to take a hold of peace. We try to use power to win peace, to wield power. Or maybe there's a company that's falling apart. People can't get along. They've lost their vision. Well, what do they do? They hire a consultant or a new CEO, and they give somebody power over the company in order to wield that power and straighten things out. Or maybe uh, if you go to a couple's counseling or marriage counseling, you'll see a counselor, you're fighting with your spouse, you can't get along, there's a conflict. So you go to a counselor and you give that counselor power to ask you hard questions, to give you homework and things to do, to direct the conversation. We believe that wielding power is the answer to peace. Or the other side of the coin, throughout history and even in the church and nationally, uh, as any, and as, even as, a, as humanity, we see power. Uh, maybe we don't see it as a resource to yield to win peace. Maybe we see it as the problem itself. We've all heard stories of how power uh, needs to be eliminated. The playing field needs to be leveled to achieve peace and conflict. Power and privilege are problems themselves in our world. And we've heard contemporary discussions about racism and police reform, talking about how power needs to be given away, given away or renounced or taken away or leveled. And if maybe that's, uh, a, maybe you're uncomfortable because that's a liberal ideology, people with conservative ideologies do the same thing. If we think back to how this country was founded, the American Revolution, a bunch of people that said, the king has too much power. We need to take away power and spread it out. So as a people, just like the way we think about money, in order to flourish, we need to renounce it or we need to keep it and celebrate it. We think about power the same way. We need to keep it, we need to celebrate it, we need to use it, or we need to renounce it, and we need to get rid of it. And those are the paths to prospering. And we both sides can't get along. And our world is filled with conflict because we don't know what to do with power. But we look at this story, this foundational story where God shows us what he thinks about power, how he uses it for peace. Look at me at verse 8. Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. The word there in Hebrew, the emphasis is on uh, brotherly um, affiliation. We're brothers. For we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you, Lot? Separate yourself from me. If you go to the left hand, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right hand, I'll go to the left. Now, Abram was a patriarch, especially in ancient Near East patriarchal society. Everyone agreed Abram was in charge. He had the power here. He was the boss. And he could have used that power to resolve this conflict. He could have said, Lot, you're crowding out my space. You have too much stuff. It's time to, I'll tell you what, either get out of my house, I'm ordering you, or if you want to stay, let's liquidate some of those assets, turn them into cash, and you can, you can find a room in the basement. Uh, but you can't store your stuff in the garage anymore. Abram could have played the boss here. Lot, here's what I'm commanding you to do. But he doesn't. Abram could have renounced his power as 
the uncle as the patriarch. He could have said, hey, Lot, you know what? You're my nephew, but really we're kinsmen. We're, we're kind of like brothers. And I don't have, you know, I just don't want to, I don't want to impose my will on you here. So I know we have this conflict, but just, um, uh, I, I, I don't know. What do you think? But he doesn't. Abram does something unique. He doesn't renounce his power. He uses it. But he doesn't uses it, use it to take control and command. He uses it to give Lot a choice, to empower Lot to make his own decision. And Lot makes a bad decision. And Abram lets him go. We often think about um, we often think about power um, as something that we need to, that's maybe from God, that we need to renounce or that we need to use and we need to do this or we need to do that or we need to get in this situation and we need to get out of this situation. And we think about power as something that belongs to us in order to bring God's peace to the world. But the way God thinks about power is it something that belongs to him that we are supposed to steward with servant hearts. Abram uses his power and privilege to enable Lot to make a choice. And when Lot makes a bad one, he lets him go. That's in between Lot and God. Lot's a grown-up now. And think about Jesus as we read in Philippians 2. God made peace with us by Jesus he doesn't get rid of his he doesn't he doesn't count equality his seat in the godhead his seat next to the father all the riches and glory of heaven he doesn't count it something to be grasped but he takes on the form of a servant he empties himself he doesn't give that power away it says as we read he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant so Jesus, the pre-incarnate son in all of his glory, takes on obedience, takes on service for the empowerment and salvation of others. Okay, Charlie, how does all this tie together? What does this passage tell us about God? Well, it tells us what God, how God approaches and uses prosperity and how he approaches and uses power for redemptive purposes. That's wonderful. But what does this have to do with us at Hope today? Well, I don't have to convince you guys that we live in a time filled with conflict. Personal conflict in our families and our friendships, uh, communal conflict in our city. We've seen that over the last two years the great social unrest in our city. Uh, conflict in the world, I think about what's going on in Afghanistan. Think about what's going on in our country. We also live in a time where the church's influence on the culture seems to be waning. As the Church of Christ, we don't have the cultural voice like we used to have, especially here in Portland. So how do we as the church, as Abraham's family, like we see Abraham do here, how do we live obediently, addressing our own sins? And how do we live for the good of others, like Abram sought to live for the good of Lot? How do we do it when the world is so conflicted and when we don't have the influence like we used to have? Well, folks, what we need to do is we need to stop looking 
to money as the answer. Hope, even if God blessed us in some miraculous way with just an outpouring of money and we were able to buy or rent the greatest building here in the middle of town in order to have and have all this equipment to have the best kids program and the most beautiful sanctuary and everything we'd ever dreamed that we'd ever be able to buy to have a place in this city. We can do all of that and not have any positive effect on the conflict and the sin that ravages our town. Prosperity is not the answer for us. Or we can have all the power. We can use our influence as a church to maybe influence politics and uh, change public health or decisions with legislatures. And we can wield power to affect the culture and still not procure peace. Folks, we as the Church of Christ need to stop being all about money, stop being all about power, and look to the God who uses money and power as things that belong to him that he has no shortage of. To get to our hearts, to help us to look to Jesus as the powerful one who leads in service, to help us to look to Jesus as the Prince of Heaven who lived among us as a itinerant worker, to look to Jesus for salvation and for peace. That's the call of this passage. And we see Abram go through something very much like this. And the way this ends, after God teaches Abram the lesson, and Abram takes his eyes off the money, puts it on God. He takes his eyes off the power, and he puts it on God. Even though Lot makes a bad decision, we see God coming to Abram and said, remember, remember, I promised to give you this land. Remember, I promised to make you a blessing. Remember, I promised to make you a great nation. And I believe that God comes to us here in this time, helps us to see Jesus. And he says, look at the offspring of Abraham. That's your big brother, O people of God. That's your husband, O church. Look at the offspring of Abraham. Look around you, the people of Christ. This is the new creation. This is the new world. And look around at this world that's falling apart. God says to us, he says, sons and daughters, this belongs to me. I'm giving it to you in Christ. Look at him. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We thank you for your word. We thank you that in the stories in the, in the Bible that you show us so many wonderful things. God, thank you for not uh, saving the world according to our ideas and our plans. Thank you for uh, thinking about things differently than we do. Think about where it says in Psalms, the Lord is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. Think about what it says in Proverbs. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. We put those things together and we look at this story and we look to you, O oh Lord, to save our church, to save our city, to save our country, and to save the world. Help us to steward the money that you've given us well to the glory of Christ. 
Help us to steward the power and the influence that you've given us well to empower others for the glory of Christ. Our Father, everything belongs to you. Everything that you have belongs to your good son, Jesus. And he shared with us his bride. Help us to trust him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.